thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Today, we take a look back at one of the most significant events in American military history and one that changed the course of World War II. It's the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor, and it's here today on this special bonus episode of the Fighter Pile Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Boat, and typically you'll hear my voice during our regular Warbird series, but today I'm shifting gears just a touch to cover one of the darkest days in American history. Now, if you're listening to the show on release day, December 7th, 2021, then exactly 80 years ago today, at approximately 8 a.m. Hawaii time, the Naval and Army Forces of the United States, stationed in Hawaii, were attacked by the Naval and Air Forces of the Empire of Japan. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read a book or two or have even maybe seen a movie on Pearl Harbor at some point in your life, but by no means are they all accurate or all-encompassing on the subject. So to help me set the record straight, and provide some real factual context to what has happened is Mr. Burt Kinsey, a U.S. Army veteran and the president of Detail and Scale Aviation Publications, as well as the author of a fantastic book on our subject today, Attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan Awakens a Sleeping Giant. Burt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bo. It's good to be here with you to talk about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Well, yeah, I'm really excited about it, and I appreciate you taking the time today. I know it's taken a little bit of effort to get us uh, both on the same page, and we're doing things a little bit different today, obviously, with our video presentation on our YouTube channel, so a little bit of a uh, new experience for me. But as a first-timer on the show for you, I want to make sure that the audience knows who they're listening to, so let's hear a little bit more about you. And as I stated earlier, you're an Army veteran, but your experience with the military doesn't end with just your time in the service, so Give us a bit of your story and your time in the service and how you came to be an author. Well, yes, I uh, graduated from Virginia Tech in 1968 uh, with the Corps of Cadets and was commissioned an officer in the Army. I served eight years uh, as an air defense officer. I commanded a missile battery in Korea during that time. And how I kind of got into writing and all I was um, assigned as an instructor at the Army Air Defense School, which was in at Fort Bliss, Texas. And I, uh, I complained that we weren't being taught enough about the Soviet air threat, air power, and that sort of stuff in the classes. So they said, well, fine, you create those classes and, and write them and uh, originate them and teach them. And I did that. And uh, I looked at the manuals the military had at the time. They weren't very accurate. Uh, so I wrote the manuals to go with my classes, and they wound up getting distributed throughout the military. So that's how it kind of got started in in the military. And then after I decided I w- would uh, resign from active duty, I got called back to create classes on uh, aircraft identification and all that as a civilian working for a Department of F- Defense. And it was during that time I wanted to start writing a series of books on military aircraft. And one thing led to another, and there's been about 140 of them that have been produced in, uh, in the interim. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And that's going back to about 1970 in the 1970s. Oh wow, you're so you're you know 40 almost 50 years into into your authoring if you will. Yes sir. Well, first thank you for your service. That's an amazing uh pedigree. 
of uh, service that you have. So thank you for that. And now I have read the subject book today, and we'll get back to a little bit more specifics on that at the end of the show. But I can see how in that book, all of that experience kind of was poured into the pages that uh, we have now and the fantastic historical record that it is. But why did you choose to dedicate such a profusely illustrated and extensive book specifically on this one event? Well, I've always been interested in the attack on Pearl Harbor since, oh gosh, probably when I was around 10 or 11 years old. My parents for Christmas one year got me a book called We Were There at Pearl Harbor. And I read that and I always wanted to study it. And so I did for quite a while. About 2000, 2001, on the 60th anniversary, a company asked me to write a small 48-page booklet on it to go with a product that they were putting out. And I did that. And then the people at Pearl Harbor in their bookstore there at the, what was then called the Arizona Memorial Foundation saw it. And they really liked it, and they wanted me to expand it to, uh, they said, we want, we like how you condense everything and get so much into a, a small space. So let's, um, can you give us one that's a little bit bigger, say about 80 pages, but we want you to keep it under $20. So the average tourist coming in is willing to spend, you know, eighteen ninety five or something, nineteen ninety five or something like that, rather than some of the big books that they had. I still wanted to do more than I had done on, uh, for for them in, in that souvenir edition. So I, I wanted to tell more of the story than you read in most of the books and make it interesting where more people can learn about what really happened that day and why it happened. Most of the books that you get are not very well illustrated. And so our book uh, here is the most profusely illustrated book ever published on the subject. I mean, not only do we have more than 360 photographs uh, in uh, the printed version and some bonus photographs in the digital versions, because it is available in both printed and digital versions, but we, we have 61 art illustrations, including 45 full-color aircraft profiles. We've got 10 maps, 23 tables. So I was able to find lots of illustrations by doing deep, research in the uh, National Archives, the Naval History uh, Museum in Washington and so forth, of the attack itself, the aftermath, the damage to the ships and stuff like that, the airfields and whatever, uh, find a lot of stuff and include this so that the average person could not only read about, but see what had happened and what was going on that day and and what happened in the days that followed. The other thing that was important to me is most of the stories, be it the movies, be it the um, books you read, the information out there talks a lot about what the Japanese did and how they did it and whatever. But very little has ever been published on what the Americans were doing. What were the Americans doing down there on those ships, uh, on the battleships along Battleship Row and the destroyers in East Loch and what was going on at the submarine bases? What was going on in the airfields? What were the Americans doing? And I wanted to bring that story out. A lot of what went on on the American side was very, very heroic. There's one aspect of it that was extremely tragic, but um, I wanted to tell all of that and illustrate it profusely where the average person could learn what it was all about. And actually, when the Pearl Harbor people asked me to do the um, book for them, the souvenir edition of it, 
they, they said what they liked about what I had done was that it would appeal to someone who had almost zero knowledge about Pearl Harbor to even people who were fairly knowledgeable about the historic. So we wanted to keep that appeal going. And I, I think we've done that pretty well. So whether you're somebody who doesn't know hardly anything other than, yes, the Japanese did attack Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, to someone who has studied it fairly extensively, I'm pretty certain you're going to find things that you didn't know uh, in in this book. And, and that's that was one of my goals as well. Well, that's that's an amazing story. And And frankly, a wonderful way to want to cover history, to give everybody a chance to learn it, whether you're the novice or you're more advanced in your understanding of the event itself. So let's ask the other question then, why did you want to name it Attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan Awakings a Sleeping Giant? Well, you know, I've gotten some questions about that a a good bit. You know, people said, well, Yamamoto never really said that. And that's true. There's no indication that Admiral Yamamoto ever made the comment that he's credited with at the end of the movie, Tora, 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 that says that I'm afraid all we have done is awaken a a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible desire. Whether he said it or not, well, in the first place, he certainly believed it because of everything he had said otherwise, like that, if we do this, I can run wild for six months. But after that, the Americans, their industrial might, they're going to overtake us and we're not going to be able to win a war unless we can do it in the first six months. So he certainly felt that way. The second reason is also that whether he said it or not, it's certainly what happened. And in the book, uh, there are chapters in the back where I show how that awakened giant rose from the ashes of Pearl Harbor or the uh, what happened at Pearl Harbor, how the industrial might had our Navy growing and growing and growing while we destroyed their Navy into oblivion, essentially. The giant was awakened and filled with that terrible resolve that he's credited with saying, like I say, in the movie, even though it's probably more of a thought he had than anything he actually said verbally. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. All right, well, let's dig into Pearl Harbor by setting the scene. So December 7th, 1941. Now, that wasn't really the true start of confrontation between the U.S. and Japan, based off of what I understand. Uh, But it was the start of physical hostilities between the two countries. So just as a, you know, three to five minute kind of discussion point, can you give us a quick synopsis of some of the events that led Japan to decide why it was necessary to attack the United States and and maybe why they determined Pearl Harbor was their best target to do so? Well, yes, of course, the um, hostilities had been growing for several years. And I do have a, uh, in the expanded edition, I do include a chapter about while Pearl Harbor. And I answer that question in in two respects. Why Pearl Harbor from, you know, why did the Japanese want to attack us in the first place? Their military was in China. They were creating a lot of uh, uh, atrocities. Of course, uh, the best known is the Rape of Nanking, where they slaughtered 80-some thousand Chinese over one weekend. And of course, this was not something that uh, we could approve of. More importantly, perhaps, of course, Japan being a small island nation uh, had to depend elsewhere on raw materials, particularly oil, but other uh, raw materials as well. And 
in response to what they were doing in China, we had started embargoing the raw materials they needed. As uh, the 1930s were going to the end, they said that they had enough fuel reserves, bunker oil, to uh, supply their ships for maybe two years at the most. And so they were really getting desperate. And of course, there were those in Japan who believed that we should have the highest level negotiations between their leadership and uh, and and Roosevelt, for that matter, and to try to work things out. And there were those who wanted to go to war. The, the second part of why Pearl Harbor is why did it why did their attack take place there versus you know why politically or strategically did it take place? From the point of view is why did it take place at Pearl Harbor is simply because Roosevelt had moved the Pacific Fleet out there. Uh, now that the whole fleet wasn't there, but and we'll get into that, but. Commander of the Pacific Fleet at the time that happened was Admiral uh, James O. Richardson, and Richardson was so incensed about it, and Roosevelt had made the decision without consulting him, without consulting any Navy leaders. He just said, we're moving the Pacific Fleet out there. And there can be speculation as to what his motives were for doing that, but at any rate, Richardson was so upset about it, he went back several times and met with Roosevelt directly to protest with it, which got him relieved. Hmm. And so uh, he got fired. Roosevelt fired him and replaced him with husband E. Kimmel, uh, Admiral Kimmel, in February of 1941. And so now the Japanese, are they're, they're facing embargoes. They're facing continuing pressure uh, from the United States, and they moved their Pacific Fleet uh, headquarters out to Pearl Harbor much, much closer to them than uh, the West Coast of the United States. So that's pretty much what led to it. Hypothetically speaking, do you feel like if the United States hadn't moved its forces and its headquarters to Pearl Harbor and left them in San Diego, because that's where they were previously, mm -hmm. right. do you feel like there would have been a change in target at that point? Or would they have remained trying to island hop basically from the west to the east across the Pacific? It, it really would have depended on just how much pressure and the, the Japanese felt based on the embargoes and, and their desperate need for raw materials. It would have been much more difficult for them to have gone that extra distance uh, yeah. uh, to attack something on the west coast. And that difficulty made them made them think twice about it. It's hard to speculate what they would do. There were those who really believed in Japan that they should negotiate, and Yamamoto was one of them. I mean, he had spent a lot of time in the United States and studied here. He was aware of our industrial capabilities. The Japanese, you know, th there had been some comments made about what we thought about the Japanese as a race, but. They thought, a lot of them thought of the Americans as lazy, slothful, complacent people that really wouldn't want to fight. That that might have persuaded some of them to give it a try. I don't know. But strategically, militarily, uh, and tactically, logistically, every way you look at it, it would have certainly been much more difficult. Now, of course, there was a naval base there at Pearl Harbor, even though it wasn't the headquarters and one there. They could have still attacked there or somewhere else. And I would think yeah. that's probably the more likely thing that would have happened. But uh, again, that's a speculation there. I mean, there's no way we can know that. No, totally fair. Totally fair. There's you know a lot of what ifs and coulda, woulda, shouldas uh, along the way throughout all of this. But getting back to what did happen. Um, so leading up to the day in question, December 7th, 1941, 
the Japanese had obviously started that process of the attack a, a lot earlier um, than the day itself because those ships needed to be pre-positioned for the attack. And they were able to get their entire attacking force across the Pacific and established north of the Hawaiian Islands for the attack. But they'd already sent submarines into the various military installation, uh, installations as scouts uh, around the Hawaiian Islands. Can you tell me a little bit about the submarine force that was used during the attack? There were actually 30 fleet submarines that were involved in the attack, five of which carried the midget submarines that we'll talk about a little later if we get into, get into uh, the, the midget submarines that actually participated. But there were the 30 submarines that went out there. And, of course, the five that launched the midget submarines, that was their mission. The others were positioned around Oahu in order to catch any American ships that might come out and uh, also provide intelligence, reconnaissance, and all of that. Whereas the first air fleet, the attacking force, came across from the, the north, uh, went across the north. They had actually sent a liner, an ocean liner, along that route just to see, and that liner sailed that uh, same route that the uh, first air fleet was going to sail and never saw a single ship. So they knew they could pretty much get lost out there in the middle of the Pacific. And yeah. the submarines, of course, uh, they uh, could be submerged during the daylight and could could, could get in there ahead of time. It, it, so basically, you had 30 uh, fleet submarines around surrounding Pearl Harbor at the time of the attack. And that was called the advance force. And now what about the midget submarines? You talked that there were five of them. Uh, and I think there's maybe a little misconception that uh, there is no maybe one or two, uh, maybe four. But uh, there were actually five midget submarines that went in and uh, attempted to do what they were assigned to do. Can you talk a little bit about the midget submarines that were assigned for the attack? Well, yeah, there were five midget submarines, and they, like I say, they were carried piggyback on uh, five mother large fleet submarines in there. Each had a two-man crew. A lot of people do know, simply by watching the movie Tora, 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 and this is a factual account, that the um, USS Ward, a old World War I Wix-class destroyer that was patrolling outside the uh, channel entrance that day, uh, did engage and fire the first shots on one of these submarines. There were several World War I types of uh, destroyers really no longer used for uh, fleet duty as a destroyer, but they could patrol around Oahu and they were uh, there at Pearl Harbor. The ward was one of them. And the morning of December the 7th, it was out patrolling or the night before. Its commander was William Outerbridge. He was a lieutenant. It was his first patrol, his first command ever. Uh, one of the coastal minesweepers, uh, uh, the Condor, saw a periscope and signaled a ward that, hey, we've got a submarine operating submerged here in the uh, restricted area. The officer on the bridge of the ward at the time was uh, Lieutenant J.G. Gepner. He went and got his commander, uh, Lieutenant Outerbridge, his captain, and came to it. And Outerbridge saw the periscope and so they uh, began, uh, he called his uh, ship to battle stations, uh, general quarters. A lot of people know that that happened, but what they don't know is that there was also a PBY Catalina from Patrol Squadron 14 flying above them. And the PBY joined in on the attack, and the PBY dropped first a couple of flares, 
The co-pilot in the PBY saw the submarine as well in the conning tower, and they dropped the uh, flares to illuminate it. And as Ward approached and turned slightly to port, the the gun on the midships on the right side, the number three gun, fired a shot, and the, the uh, crew claimed that they put the round right straight through the conning tower, the base of the conning tower. At that point, the submarine started diving, and Outer Bridge ran the ward right up on the thing and went right over top of it and dropped depth charges on it as he passed over it. And then the, the, the Catalina, the PBY, dropped a depth charge as well and reported back to their headquarters that they had sunk a Japanese submarine, or an, well, they used the word enemy submarine, operating in the restricted area. And Ward also reported that to the 14th Naval District that they had also fired on and depth charged a submarine operating in the restricted area. That submarine was found in 2002. And sure enough, there was a uh, round, a hole right through the base of the conning tower, right where the guys that were crewing gun mount number threes claimed that they hit it. So it is still there where it sank to this day. and and with its two crewmen inside. Wow, amazing. And so there were some other midget submarines that revolved in attack. And after reading through uh, your book, uh, I, I didn't know that one of the midget sub- subs had uh, gotten lost and was unable to navigate properly and actually uh, was beached um, outside of Oahu. Uh, can you tell me anything about that unique story? Well, yeah, the one of them uh, had compass issues and got lost essentially and couldn't make it into the harbor like the one the ward sank of course it was there was a net across the harbor entrance when they had to open that to let Antares pass in that's why he was trying to sneak in well this submarine didn't get quite get that far the one you're talking about it actually got lost in in the night couldn't find its um bearings and went around the east uh, point of Oahu and up around on the uh, northeast side of the eastern shore there near Bellows Field, which was an auxiliary airstrip. And it was beached. One of its crewmen uh, was uh, captured, an ensign Sakamaki. Uh, He was taken, he was the first Japanese prisoner of the war. The other crewman was never found. Nobody knows whatever happened to him, but we did capture one of the crewmen. And each of the midget subs had two very powerful torpedoes in in their bow. And so that particular one didn't uh, engage in the action. It's tor- when it was uh, beached, it still had its two uh, torpedoes. One of the uh, submarines, another submarine, midget submarine, was found later, I think July 1960, if I remember the correct date. But it could not have been the one that uh, fired the torpedoes at the um, St. Louis, even though it was found in the channel near where that happened, because that particular submarine still had its uh, two torpedoes. So it had not fired them. Uh, When it was found, there was no remains of the crew in it. So nobody knows what happened to them at all. Wow. Fascinating. Did any, you mentioned the net, did any of the midget submarines make it inside the harbor? Right. uh, Actually, uh, that is something that a lot of people don't know. People may have heard about the ward attacking a midget submarine, but there was actually another engagement with one of the other midget submarines inside the harbor. What happened was that the one thing that people did do in response to Ward's report was that the Monaghan, a destroyer that was in each lot and one of the destroyer nests, was the ready-duty destroyer. So the Monaghan was alerted uh, at 
0751 hours to uh, join the ward. But if you know how the attack went, that's only four minutes before the first bombs fell. So they're getting ready to go and go help ward and, and, and see if there's any more submarines out there. And as they're doing so, in, come, in comes the first wave. Lieutenant Commander Buford kept his crew motivated and getting going to bring up the uh, boilers and get the ship moving. And he pulled out at out of his berth at 0827 hours and turned the ward around to go out across the western side, north and western side of Fort Island. And the attack is underway and they look out in the seaplane fender Curtis, which is over parked uh, or, or more near the um, Minecraft in Middle Lodge, was firing at something in, in the harbor uh, with its five-inch guns, and it raised a flag hoist saying submarine in the harbor. So the um, captain and the uh, crew of Monaghan saw this, and the captain asked the helmsman if he could see the um, submarine that they were shooting at, uh, uh, the Curtis and some of the Minecraft by this time were shooting at. And he said he did. He said, well, you steam steam for that submarine. And the two five-inch mounts up on the front of um, the forward end of the uh, Monaghan started firing. But the Mount 1 had a misfire, uh, hang fire with its round, and Mount 2 couldn't be depressed enough. And its uh, round went above the uh, submarine hit the water beyond it and ricocheted into a dredge and started a fire on the dredge. The oh, meantime, yeah. the submarine has seen the Monaghan come bearing down on it at flank speed in the harbor and fires one of its torpedoes at the Monaghan. Of course, it's bow on, so it's a difficult shot. Uh, this The uh, torpedo missed to the starboard side. So oh. now we've got this submarine and, the, and one of our destroyers engaging each other right there inside the harbor. And what basically finally happened is that the war, as the Monaghan approached the submarine, the Curtis, the seaplane tender, and the Minecraft stopped firing so that they would not hit the uh, Monaghan. And like I say, the Monaghan's guns couldn't be depressed enough to, to shoot at it anymore it was so small and low in the water so it rammed it and um, hit it a good solid but glancing blow and as the Monaghan passed over it with a stern they dropped two depth charges which literally blew it completely out of the water. That particular submarine was raised from the bottom of the harbor after the attack. It was examined and searched. The two crewmen who had been killed were buried with full military honors. And after it had been um, checked for by intelligence people and uh, inspected, it was buried in a landfill. There are, uh, uh, the book has uh, a chart of, of how this attack took place inside the harbor. It has a picture of that submarine after they had recovered it, but before they buried it in the landfill. So that's in there as well. Well, let's move on from the under the surface portion and let's get up to uh, above it and discuss the U.S.'s Pacific fleet. So first and foremost, there's a wildly held assumption that all of the Pacific fleet was in the harbor that morning, but that's not quite true, was it? Uh, no, actually about half of the Pacific fleet was in or around uh, in the general vicinity of Pearl Harbor at the, or Hawaii at the time of the attack. Uh, about 100 ships. I have a complete chapter in the book 
that shows where every ship was. Some were on convoy duty, some patrolling here and there, some were in ports along the west coast of the United States, some were actually in ports internationally. So uh, when they say the entire fleet was there, uh, no, uh, it, it was about half the fleet. The major battleships, yes, uh, all but one of the uh, Pacific Fleet's battleships were in harbor that day. The Colorado was back on the west coast. Other than that, the the other ships were all there. So I do have complete charts showing where they were. Of course, the carriers, three of the, there were, at the time of the attack, there were three carriers assigned to the Pacific Fleet. and. Enterprise was delivering planes to Wake Island. Lexington was delivering planes to Midway Island. And uh, Saratoga was back entering San Diego Harbor at the time. Yorktown and Hornet were still on the East Coast uh, at the time, as was Ranger. So, uh, you know, those three carriers were not there, thankfully. Now, if I remember correctly from watching Tora, 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 there seemed to be a mission that one of the carriers was put on to basically get out of the harbor and look for the Japanese attack force that they presumed was on its way to uh, somewhere in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. But from what you said, they're delivering aircraft. Does that sound accurate to you? Does that make sense? Well, both the carriers that were operating out of Pearl Harbor at the time, like I say, Saratoga was back in San Diego. But Mm -hmm. Lexington and Enterprise were operating out of Pearl Harbor. And in the day, week or so leading up prior to that, and knowing war was coming somewhere, we wanted to reinforce our garrisons at Wake Island and basically F4F3 Wildcats, uh, Marine Wildcats, were being transported to Wake Island by the Enterprise. So that's where she was. And then Lexington was taking aircraft to Midway Island. So they were basically being used as air, aircraft transports, if you will, to, to garrison, to, to, to strengthen the garrisons with more aircraft. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Well, that brings up another question, I guess, as I was reading through your book and have, and, and have looked at the, uh, the movies, that... I thought carriers, and this might just be due to, you know, now uh, carriers are the main fighting force within the U.S. Navy. Was that not the main target for the Japanese when they went to attack Pearl Harbor? Well, you know, there's this is something that once you start studying it in detail, you find very interesting. You know, the Japanese here are launching the first major carrier borne air attack. In history, I mean, yes, they yeah. used their carriers in China and and whatever, and you know, there were still the battleship admirals and there was the carrier admirals. So, okay, the battleship is obsolete. Uh, aircraft carriers will fight the war from now on. But here they are demonstrating that the aircraft carrier is the major striking force in dramatic fashion, but. If you read their operations order, and I've read a direct English translation of the operation order, it was called the Hawaiian Operation or Operation Z by the Japanese. And it was the battleships that they primarily wanted to get. Now, why was that? And it can be demonstrated in a couple of ways. First of all, Yamamoto realized that 
the Great White Fleet or the battleships of the U.S. Navy for years and years had been the international projection of military force by the United States around the world. It was the pride of the U.S. military, the pride of the nation, for that matter. And he believed that by sinking the battleships, destroying the battleships, that would strike a, a blow of the morale of the United States as much as anything. And they were so determined to destroy the battleships that they developed a specific weapon. And we should get into the weapons that the Japanese used here. But they de the, they developed a specific weapon to uh, help accomplish this task that was used only at Pearl Harbor. And it was, they knew that, the, the, they knew the Americans uh, along Battleship Road usually moor the ships in pairs, an inboard and an outboard, a ship inboard to, to the island and then a ship outboard of it. Well, the inboard ships would be protected against torpedo attacks. So how do you get the inboard ships if you can't hit them with torpedoes? So they developed a special shell. They took a naval battleship shell, 15-inch battleship shell, and basically turned it into a bomb, an armor-piercing bomb, and uh, put fins on it, and they they made 50 of them. In the first wave, the Cates that were used as horizontal bombers all carried that particular bomb, and Fuchida, Commander Fuchida, who led the air attack, led that per particular uh, group of aircraft that dropped those bombs. Now, we know that 39 of them wound up doing nothing but hitting and splashing into the bottom of the harbor, and they, they were rather ineffective. Uh, several of them were found in the battleships uh, as duds that did not explode. But, of course, one of them, uh, dropped by the, that first uh, wave of uh, horizontal bombers, penetrated the deck of Arizona right next to the number two turret and went down into the, where the magazines and powder and all were stored. And, of course, not only blew up itself, but blew up all that powder and split the ship in two and caused the tremendous fireball you see when Arizona blew up and then sank. That, so, yeah, the yeah, battleships that makes, that were in the orders as being the number one priority target, not the carriers. Well, I think you you added something that's a great transition for the air attacks. And there's a ton to unpack, I guess, with those air attacks, uh, not only the strategic, uh, but the tactical portion of it as well. So let's start with where the Japanese uh, wanted to attack during the course of the overall uh, mission. And it wasn't just at Pearl Harbor, was it? That's one of the interesting things. They don't re refer to it as the attack on Pearl Harbor. They refer to it as the attack on Hawaii, on Hawaii, which essentially it was all Oahu. But yeah, the uh, of course the ships in the harbor, Ford Island was attacked. The Hickam Field, all the airfields, Wheeler, uh, Bellows, they were all attacked. Kaneohe was attacked. Iwa uh, Marine Corps Air Station was attacked. So the uh, and. We have maps in the in the book that show the first and second waves and what they were to do at, at each place and why. And of course, there was a specific reason why they attacked uh, the ships in the in the harbor and in the navy yard and that sort of thing. The seaplane bases, everything had to be attacked. Uh, you've already mentioned the Kate bombers that used the modified uh, shipborne artillery shells, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, but uh, 
what else do they have being launched off of the carriers to uh, execute the air attacks? There were actually four types of airplanes used um, that morning. Let me say that that morning. Uh, three of which, uh, three types were used in the actual attack. Now, the very first airplane, Japanese airplane, to fly across Pearl Harbor was not launched from one of the carriers. It was a seaplane that was launched from uh, one of the uh, cruisers. And I have an entire ship, uh, an entire chapter on the Japanese ships. Uh, everybody heard about the six carriers and the uh, three different carrier divisions, but you know there were thirty ships in all, surface ships. I'm not talking about the submarines now, but there were thirty surface ships, and two of them were cruisers that were specifically designed to carry seaplanes, and these seaplanes uh, were used for scouting purposes. I mean, you know, this is long before the days of radars. Uh, uh, I mean, the sophisticated long-range radars, radar planes, satellites, and that sort of thing. So what what you have is the Chikuma and the Tonya, the two of the cruisers, launched the um, E-13A-1 Jake reconnaissance float planes. And their purpose was one of them flew over Pearl Harbor, the one from Chikuma, flew over Pearl Harbor that morning, totally undetected. And the other one from the Tony flew down to the Lahaina anchorage because the Japanese knew that sometime we would move the ships down to the Lahaina anchorage. And if they were there, you know, then then the whole attack plan had to be changed. So one of the one that each one of them would fly over its assigned area and report back to the first air fleet, Admiral Nagumo, and say, here's what the weather conditions are. The ships are in the harbor. Well, of course, the one from Chikuma said, yep, the ships are here in Pearl Harbor. And so that was the first airplane that flew over Pearl Harbor that day, that that float plane uh, from the Chikuma. Now, in taking the attack itself, there were three types of aircraft used. The fighter was the famous Mitsubishi. A six M two version of the Zero. It was the Type Zero Zero Model Twenty One carrier fighter in Japanese parlance, and um, because it was Type Zero Zero, we often refer to it as Zero. Its actual reporting name was Zeke, but it was the Zero. And its job was that if the Americans were ready and had aircraft in the air ready to defend, they were to, to tangle with them and try to gain air superiority while the um, other aircraft did, did their job. The attacking aircraft did their job. If the Americans were asleep and all their airplanes were on the ground, then they were to dive down and strafe those airplanes on the ground. And also, the, they went after the um, uh, seaplanes in both the first and second wave over at Kaneohe uh, because if the seaplanes could take off, the Catalinas, with their long range, they could start patrolling and perhaps find the Japanese. So they wanted to make sure that they stayed on the ground. So that was the job of the uh, Zeros. And they were armed with two 20-millimeter cannon and two 7.7-millimeter uh, uh, machine guns. So they strafed. That's, uh, none of them carried bombs. They, uh, the only external store they were carrying was a centerline fuel tank. And just show you how effective they were, most of the uh, fighters that we lost at Wheeler and down at uh, Marine Corps Air Station, Iwa, that was attacked only by Zeros, strafing. And essentially, every plane on that base was damaged uh, 
or destroyed simply by strafing by the zero. Wow. The second plane to talk about would be the D3A1 VAL. We called it the VAL. They called it the Type 99 Model 11 carrier bomber, but in our Navy pilots, we would have called it the dive bomber. It had a fixed landing gear. At Pearl Harbor, it carried, uh, the VALs carried two types of 250 kilogram bombs. One was called an ordinary bomb, which is basically a naval bomb that's designed to pierce uh, armor uh, and explode, uh, get, get through and explode in, inside of ships and that sort of thing. And some carried what, well, it was again a 250 kilogram bomb, but it was called a land bomb. And that was used to attack hangars and the structures and the stuff like that. So the valves were used as dive bombers. Now, the valves could also carry 60 kilogram bombs, one under each wing, but at Pearl Harbor, they, none of that was done by the valves. So the valves at Pearl Harbor simply carried one of those two 250 kilogram bombs, depending on whether their targets were shipping or whether their target was uh, a hangar or uh, some facility on the ground. The valves also had uh, two cowl machine guns, uh, and they had a, a flexible machine gun in the rear cockpit for defense. But once they dropped their bombs, then they sort of became fighters, if you will, and, and they use, they were to use their two cowl-mounted machine guns to strafe targets of, of opportunity ships, whatever. The ones that are attacked Wheeler Field, for example, they would drop their bombs and then they would strafe the aircraft on the ground until they ran out of ammunition and then return home. The third aircraft that participated, Japanese aircraft that participated in the attack, uh, actually performed two missions. And that was the um, B-5 into uh, what the Japanese called a Type 97 Model 3 carrier attack attack plane. Some of them in the first wave were carrying the bomb I told you about that was developed from the naval shell to uh, hit the uh, battleships uh, along battleship row on the inboard side. And then others uh, in the first wave were carrying the torpedoes that did a lot of the damage to the uh, ships along battleship road and also on the the west side of uh, Fort Island. Uh, A lot of people don't know this, but the torpedo attacks and the attacks with that bomb were were only in the first wave. That that only happened with the first wave, not the second wave. So that's what the Cates were doing in the first waves. So the, the Kate actually mission-wise had two different missions, horizontal bomber and torpedo bomber in the first wave. In the second wave, all of the Cates were horizontal bombers, and they were carrying a mix of those 250 and 60 kilogram bombs I mentioned, and they were attacking airfields like uh, Hickam Field. They, they came over high altitudes bombing Hickam. Uh, uh, they also bombed Kaneohe in the second way uh, to take out the hangars and structures there. That is a extensive bit of information you have there, sir. Well done. That's very impressive. Let's talk about the Japanese surface ships. And I don't think I've ever heard it mentioned, but just to make sure we cover it, did any of them... Uh, engaged directly with any U.S. forces at any time throughout the attack? That That's interesting. I did dedicate a whole chapter in the book to the uh, the ships because, like I say, everybody has heard about the six aircraft carriers that were involved uh, in, in the three divisions. The first air division was the Akagi and the Kaga, and the second was the Hiryu and the Soryu. And the fifth carrier division was the brand new carriers, Zuikaku and Shokaku. So we have those. And then there were two battleships with the um, uh, first air fleet that were assigned to it. Basically, there were 22 uh, surface ships uh, and the two battleships, the three cruisers, the Tony, the Chikumai, and mentioned 
and another one that was actually the lead ship for the destroyers. There were to be 12 destroyers, and their job was to protect the first air fleet from any American submarines that might detect them. But to answer your question specifically there about the ships engaging uh, American forces directly, two of those uh, destroyers broke off as they came down past Midway and actually went over and shelled Midway that morning. So they were actually firing shells into Midway. And then in addition to those, uh, those surface combatants, there were eight oilers. And their job was as uh, the uh, force turned south and was approaching, they refueled all of the surface combatants, and then they returned immediately back to Japan. They didn't come on down to the attack position. Uh, so the 22 uh, surface combatants uh, came on down, of course, the, detaching the two that, that went over there to Midway to, to shell them. So it wasn't a huge force that left uh, Japan that back in November to head that way. Of course, when they left, they didn't know if they were going to attack at all. Uh, some people, anyway, uh, and and Yamamoto among them, hoped that the negotiation could be um, worked out with the United States. But when it came, the code climb Mount Nataka was given, so they knew they were going to attack. Now, I think we have you know covered the Japanese forces, and you touched a little bit on the American aircraft that were in the air um, at the beginning of our discussion. But let's dive a little bit further into what the Americans had to offer both on the ground and in the air uh, for the aircraft side of the house. Yeah, uh, well, of course, we had the the uh, B-17s that were coming in, and of course, uh, they were being led by Major Landon, and uh, his remark was, what a way to fly into a war unarmed and out of gas. And, That's uh, right. They did actually have their machine guns on them, but they were soaked in oil and, and they were not mounted. They they had no ammunition and whatever. Okay. And so they were trying to get down at Hickam and uh, Field, which was, of course, the bomber base right adjacent to uh, Pearl Harbor itself. And they was, you know, trying to wheel or feel, which was the fighter where the fighters were. Uh, and even one of them had to crash in. A, a lieutenant uh, had to bring his um, uh, bomber in at Bellows, which was a short uh, auxiliary airstrip. And the Japanese shot it to pieces after he, he built, put it in there. But Navy had launched 18 SBD-2 Dauntlesses from Enterprise uh, to fly ahead of Enterprise and land at Ford Island. Uh, and they were coming in, of course, from the West. And of those 18, uh, they had the unfortunate um, uh, experience of flying right into the attack as well. One of the first to get there was flown by an innocent um, Vaught uh, and uh, his gunner, uh, radio man, uh, Sidney Pierce, uh, flew right into the attack. Uh, he radioed, don't shoot me, I'm an American. And he was actually shot down by friendly fire. If you will, uh, the guys on the ground in the ships, they were shooting at anything in the air. And he, he was shot down uh, and both of them killed. I think one of the ones that deserves real credit, and I try to bring out some stories of some really exceptional service uh, that day, uh, a Lieutenant Clarence Dickinson was flying in uh, one of the Dauntlesses, uh, and he had radio man first class um, William Miller back in the back cockpit uh, as his radio man and gunner. And they were attacked by zeros. And Miller got the gun out and started returning fire. And uh, Dickinson charged his guns, but um, they they hit the Dauntless too hard, and it was going down. 
Dickinson bailed out of the airplane, his stricken airplane. Miller never did. He was probably dead already from uh, from being hit uh, by the Zeros. But Dickinson, not upset that much by it all, parachuted down, worked his way over to Ford Island. That afternoon, gotten one of the other Dauntlesses that made it in safely and flew out looking for the Japanese, even after he'd been shot down this that morning. You had mentioned about the uh, Enterprise launching and looking for the Japanese as well. That mm-hmm. actually happened late in that afternoon, uh, around 1,700 hours. There had been reports that Japanese carriers had been sighted south of Hawaii. Of course, there were none down there. But Enterprise launched its Devastators, its VT-6 uh, squadron, uh, all 18 of its um, TBD-1 Devastators, and uh, they were escorted by uh, six more Dauntlesses uh, with smoke generators to screen the the uh, Devastators if they found the ships as they launched their torpedoes, and then also six F-4F-3 Wildcat fighters for fighter patrol and fighter protection. Well, after they found nothing, the, the Dauntlesses and the Devastators returned to Enterprise, but the six F-4F-3 uh, Wildcats flew to Fort Island. And in spite of the fact that repeated warnings had been sent to the ships and the shores and batteries and everything else, we've got Navy planes coming in, do not shoot at them. They opened fire on them, and four of the six were shot down. An ensign, um, Herbert H. Menges was flying 6F-15. He was shot down and killed by friendly fire as he came in and became the first U.S. Navy um, fighter pilot to be killed in the war, but he was killed by his own forces. Wow. I mentioned earlier, you know, that for that, well, that that there was a, a major tragedy on the American side, and that was the lack of discipline for uh, our people shooting at airplanes that they they made no distinction about the um you know anything in the air was japanese as far as they were concerned on the army side of the house we got 21 of our fighters in the air mostly from wheeler field uh which were where fighters were of course the two most famous are george welsh and kenneth taylor and they have been portrayed in various ways um, in, uh, in the movies and whatever. They had been to an all-night party at Wheeler Field. Uh, so they were kind of, you know, living the, the typical fighter pilot life, I suppose you could say. <laughs> when it happened, they had their two planes was out on the um, at, at Haleiwa Field, which was just a very small uh, auxiliary strip right on the beach on the northwest side of Oahu. And they got in Taylor's car. They, they're racing over there, and they're getting strafed, but they make it. And they take off, and they get into the air. And, of course, these are the guys that the two lead characters in that horrible movie, Pearl Harbor. By horrible, I mean horribly as far as accuracy is concerned. That's who uh, they're supposed to represent, I guess. But you sure. even see them in uh, in um, Tora, Tora, Tora as well. But uh, And they actually use their real names there. But they did get into the air, and they went down to where the uh, Zeros were attacking the Marines at uh, Iwa, and Welch uh, uh, shot down a couple of them, and um, Taylor, well, Welch won and uh, damaged another, and Taylor got a couple, and then they flew back to Wheeler, rearmed, 
uh, their guns got back into the air and between them totaled for the day, they, uh, they got seven airplanes with Welch getting three and Taylor getting four. Welch was later killed um, post-war when he was uh, a test pilot flying the early um, F-100 developmental aircraft for the F-100 Super Sabre. Philip Rasmussen was another one that got in the air. He was flying one of the older P-36s. He engaged um, Zeros over near Kaneohe where they were attacking uh, the uh, seaplane base over there with the Catalinas and that sort of thing. And he um, he had a claim uh, that he had shot down uh, one for sure. Records studied at the end of the war indicated that although he severely damaged the plane, that pilot was able to get it back to his carrier. So uh, wow. he you know it was actually not verified. But uh, like I say, overall we got twenty one um, of our uh, army fighters in the air. At least one of those, and possibly others, were shot down by friendly fire. Again, so. That was certainly something that we needed to work on before we got further into the war. But uh, so, yes, we had quite a few Navy, Army uh, aircraft that get in the air. We also had everything from float planes to whatever could fly just about, even unarmed uh, utility planes that people volunteered to fly and get in the air and go out and look for the Japanese. Yeah, They didn't find them, of course, because of erroneous reports of uh, where they were. And and on top of that, of course, you got a great big ocean out there and they could have been in any one of the direction uh, of the compass uh, uh, from Oahu. So they did not find them. But uh, and one of them, uh, of course, uh, worthy of mention here is that one of the ones who got in the air and didn't, didn't engage the enemy, as it turned out, was Francis Gabreski, who later became one of the leading Air Force aces uh, flying P-47s in Europe. So we we gave a pretty good account of ourselves in the air for being totally unprepared uh, at the moment it began. Yeah, that's that's a lot more than I ever had an idea uh, we're able to get airborne. So that's great for them to be able to make it happen. And obviously, the movies have portrayed uh, various levels of uh, uh, readiness when it comes to pilots being able to go. But I think both of those uh, two films, Tor Tor Torah and the uh, Pearl Harbor um, movie most recently, uh, have portrayed those two individual pilots very differently uh, in a lot of ways. And <laughs> yeah, they sure do. How, in general, how successful were the crews that defending the ships once they were able to actively respond? Obviously, the Arizona was was a, a complete loss, essentially, pretty early on. But some of the other ships, or many of the other ships, had crews that were able to jump on and, and start firing back. How successful were they? Well, they were quite successful given given the situation, but nowhere near as successful as they claimed to be. Okay. And one of the interesting things I have read um, numerous times the after action reports, or they're just simply called the action reports, of every ship that was in the harbor that day. And if you go by the claims of the aircraft that their crews, they claim that their crew shot down, the Japanese would have lost more aircraft than they launched. Which, which of course they didn't do. Well, what was happening is that particularly the low-flying valves and the torpedo bombers, the Cates that were to be, they had to be down low. And when they were engaged by one ship, they were usually being engaged by several ships. And so if when actually one of the torpedo bombers, for example, somebody must have hit the warhead because the whole thing just blew up right as it hmm. came out of uh, East Loch, uh, past the submarine base and was coming up toward Battleship Row. And I mean, it just blew up and 
like the whole torpedo blew up and blew the whole front end of the airplane off. It went down. Well, there were probably seven or eight ships firing at it at that time. Sure. And, you know, they all claimed it. So you, you kind of add it that way. The first wave, though, not quite so much. Uh, I mean, I mean, we were caught completely off guard. None of the horizontal bombers, they were up so high. And, of course, the ones in the first wave, they dropped those um, special uh, bombs on the inside or well, along Battleship Row and were gone before anybody could do it, just about anything. If you, you talk about even where East Lodge, where all the destroyers were, or the Minecraft and Middle Lodge with Curtis up there, there are ships cl- making multiple claims on the same aircraft that were shot down. But, you know, I, I, you can't criticize them. Uh, it's a Sunday morning. They had been out Saturday night. A lot of the ships had very minimal crews on it. But but who was there really responded pretty quickly uh, based on the action reports that, I mean, we're in minutes. And even people who couldn't do much of anything, they would grab a Springfield rifle, bolt-action rifle, and in, in some cases, a 1911 45 pistol, and yeah. at, which is more in anger or anything like that or frustration, tried to, sh- to, to, to shoot at these aircraft. But So the, there's certainly no, no lack of effort on that part. But we, we really, really weren't prepared. One of the lessons you have to learn, too, and the damage that was done was not because of a lack of effort on defense. We had thought that there was no way that the Japanese could launch torpedoes in Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Pearl Harbor was about 45 feet deep. Uh, the typical Japanese Mark 97 torpedo plunged about 90 feet deep when it was launched on uh, a normal attack. Plus, it had to run a certain distance before its warhead armed. Well, those distances didn't exist inside the harbor, and the harbor's too wild. We'll never, so we didn't even bother to put torpedo nets along in front of the ships. Mm-hmm. So what did the Japanese do? And I used to teach this in one of my classes on air power back at uh, the Air Defense School, is do not prepare for what you know your enemy can do. Prepare for what is po- you know what he might be able to do. Sure. Uh, and the Japanese, it was very simple. They put wooden fins on the back of their torpedoes uh, and painted them silver. They looked just like the uh, regular fins, but they they added those on there, and it cut the depth that the, the torpedo went when it was dropped to about 30 feet. And then they modified the arming device so that it would arm quickly once it hit the water. And the major damage to the battleships were from those torpedoes. Uh, and I have pictures of the books after they raised West Virginia and uh, then brought Oklahoma up. Uh, they had to flip her back over again, which took year, a couple of years. And yep. I've got pictures of what those torpedoes did to the sides of those ships in, in the book. And it was just amazing. Uh, but it wasn't because of any lack of, uh, of us trying to um, prevent uh, them from attacking us. It was that with the um, guys returning fire and so forth, it was a question of, we didn't think they could do it in the first place. Uh, yeah. So that's one of the things to keep in mind. The other, the other point is a big lesson learned from Pearl Harbor was we've got to protect our ships from the air now. The, the air defenses, uh, uh, the air defense guns on the ships were rather limited. Uh, 50 caliber machine guns and some five-inch weapons that were dual purpose. Right away, we started, like, uh, an example would be some of the destroyers. The 
that were there. The number three five-inch mount was removed and uh, nothing but anti-aircraft guns were put in its place. And during the war, we kept adding more and more and more anti-aircraft guns to our ships to protect them. As they, you know, we used everything we had at Pearl Harbor that was an anti-aircraft capable weapon on the ships, but it, it really wasn't significant to do the job, particularly in, in, um, in the face of, you know, 350 airplanes attacking you. Yeah, it's <clears throat> a lot of lessons. A lot of lessons are being learned uh, through engagements like this. And obviously many were learned from uh, this one. So let's talk about those as we start to conclude our look at the 80th anniversary of the attack. First for the United States. So you talked about adding additional uh, AAA pieces on naval ships. Um, what else in the short term did the Navy take away? And then what else in the long term did, were they able to uh, use? All right. Well, the short term losses that we faced, uh, if you look at the official document that was sent uh, by Kimmel to uh, Chief of Naval Operations and, and back to Washington, the, the official damage report lists 18 ships, which includes a the training ship Utah, which was which capsized. Uh, it was not a combatant at all. It inc also includes a tugboat and a um, floating dry dock. When when uh, you report that, for example, the West Virginia was sunk, there is a difference between the term sunk and lost. West Virginia was raised, uh, patched up a good bit there, and sent back to the West Coast. All of the battleships there, whether they were heavily damaged or, or very lightly damaged, had to be modernized before they could be used. And that is the air defense guns we're talking about here. They had okay. their hulls blistered and five-inch dual 38s were added. Scores of 40-millimeter Borfers, 20-millimeter cannons, uh, air defense were all put in there. And that took time. We know we had to do that because the air threat was severe now. But those ships, again, those battleships were so slow that they were never used with the fast carrier forces. They, they could do maybe 20, 21 knots. They were World War I era ships, whereas the fast carrier forces operated in excess of 30 knots quite a bit. So the to get those battleships up to, to do the secondary but still very important role of shore bombardment, they had to be modernized. And I, I take each ship in there and show what they you know, before, during, and after type photos. And basically, when you look at the permanent loss on the U.S. side, as far as the ship's concerned, only Arizona and Oklahoma, two battleships, were permanently lost. And of course, Arizona is still there to this day. The Utah was lost permanently, but that, like I say, was a, a, an old battleship that had been changed into a target ship, a training ship, and uh, it's still there to this day. Oklahoma was flipped back over. And I show some pictures of that in the book. It was a very interesting process of how they did that. It took quite a while. Refloated. And after the war was going to be towed back to the United States to be scrapped, but a storm came up and she wound up sinking. The Hulk wound up sinking in the middle of the Pacific. Oh, but basically, we lost, uh, as far as combatants are concerned, Arizona and Oklahoma, two battleships that would have been only used in a shore bombardment role later in the than the um, uh, war. So long term, we recovered very, very quickly. Had there been a third wave, it may have been different. Uh, you know, there was quite a bit of de debate about the third wave, uh, Bo. 
what happened was when the aircraft, the Japanese aircraft returned to the carriers, Fujita wanted to, who had led the attack, he wanted a third wave. And Nagumo said, no way. Now, what you have to understand here is that the first two waves, the waves that actually happened, were all those aircraft were launched from the carriers and they were all in the air at the same time. The um, first wave did its thing and then the second wave came in behind it, but they were all in the air at the same time. In order to launch a third wave, those planes had to return and be rearmed and refueled. There weren't enough more airplanes on those carriers to launch a third wave while the first and second were still out there. So the same planes would have to go back uh, and 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 be refueled. Well, that all takes time. The reports had told Nagumo, Lexington is not there. It, Lexington and its escorts are not there. Enterprise and her escorts are not there. He didn't know where they were. Yeah. And he didn't know where any American submarines were. So if he had to keep his task force there north of Hawaii, rearm, refuel, and then launch the third, then you've got an issue. Uh, he might be found. And he wanted to maintain that task force because the war has got to go on. And so a very good argument made in his behalf. On the other hand, however, you know, they did not attack the oil reserves. And there was enough oil reserves there to run the Pacific Fleet for months and months and months and months. And those yeah. tanks were sitting wide open. And there are pictures in the book showing those tanks. So they didn't attack that. They didn't attack the submarine base at all. And the submarines were even with their uh, faulty torpedoes, were used against the Japanese. But th that's just a brief point I want to make. L let me get into the, uh, then uh, finishing up here and talk about the Japanese losses short and long term. Nine zeros were shot down, uh, 15 valves. The, uh, dive, uh, of course, they were flying low. The dive bombers, they were slow, they were low, and were more vulnerable, and five capes. And, of course, they lost the five midget submarines. So that's the short-term loss the Japanese experience at the day, nine zeros, 15 valves, and five kates, and five midget submarines. However, this is where the awakening the sleeping giant comes in. Of the 30 ships that, that participated in, in the attack, including the oilers, all but one oiler and one destroyer were sunk during the war. And the one destroyer was in such, so badly damaged, it was in the harbor and never repaired and out of action. And one oiler was sur surrendered at the end of the war. Of the 30 fleet submarines that participated in the attack, all 30 were sunk during the war. 26 of 27 Japanese aircraft carriers in the war were sunk. 11 of 12 battleships, 41 of 44 cruisers. Entire classes of destroyers, 134 in total, 129 fleet submarines, and hundreds of auxiliaries and smaller craft. The only battleship that was still afloat was the Nagato, that had been Yamamoto's uh, uh, flagship at the start of the war, and it was nothing but a floating hulk in a harbor that they used for to put any aircraft guns on. It couldn't even go to sea. Yeah. So uh, the you know, what happened to the Japanese Navy, it was completely decimated and destroyed by the end of the war. And our Navy was growing in size with every type of ship being added every single day, every single week. We were growing and our industrial might, the giant was awakened. And that 
that is why I chose the name of the book, because regardless of whether Yamamoto said it or what, that's what happened. And it, the long-term loss was, and that's just what happened to the Navy, the long-term loss uh, with their uh, Army Air Forces, their Army on the ground, and their cities that were bombed by the B-29s, the, the Awakened Giant was so successful, both militarily, industrially, and otherwise, that it was Tokyo Harbor that had the American ships in it at the end of the war. Yeah. So uh, there, that's that's your awakened giant. So I, I hope that explains to you uh, to you what uh, what we're uh, uh, what I meant by the uh, the uh, why I chose a name for the uh, book as being awakening the sleeping giant. Absolutely, absolutely. Would after everything that we've talked through today and all the history that we know, would the Japanese have considered this a success? The attacks on uh, the Hawaiian Islands, or would they have considered it something less than that? You know, I uh, from what I've seen, I would say that there was mixed emotions. I think there are some that were celebrating and dancing in the streets, thinking that they, you know, had dealt a um, a very severe blow, perhaps one that would be enough to bring us to negotiations that some uh, had thought might happen. Those who were for doing it, they were probably pretty pleased with it. I'm sure there were some, though, that considered it more like, my God, what have we gotten ourselves into and weren't so sure that we had done, uh, they had done or accomplished enough with the attack that uh, what happened actually did happen uh, was not going to happen, that, that they they realized that, well, we probably are going to wind up in a pretty bad situation as America responds, gets itself together, and starts working its way across the Pacific Ocean to finally gain the uh, ultimate victory there in Tokyo Bay. Yeah, well, that's, I think, a great synopsis, and I, I would agree with that sentiment. It makes makes a lot of sense. Well, very good. Now, like I said, maybe towards the uh, beginning of the uh, show, this is kind of an overview of the attacks on Pearl Harbor. And luckily for us, we have your book to kind of fill in all the rest of the gaps, get a lot more context with photographic evidence. And for our YouTube viewers, they've obviously been enjoying that as we have been discussing everything here. Um, but I've read all of it and it is a fantastic book. And like I said, the artwork is uh, amazing and it really does uh, fill in the rest of those gaps. Is there anything else that you want to highlight that is in the book that would be worthwhile for our listeners to know about um, as we uh, start? Yeah, I, I do appreciate you mentioning the artwork. Uh, my good friend and colleague, Rock Rosak, just, I told him what I wanted in the form of the maps and the illustrations, and he delivered beautifully, uh, whether it's the profiles of the aircraft, the maps, and as you'll see, the maps have uh, codes in them showing you what was happening and the name of the Japanese uh, pilot or leader of uh, that particular part of the attack. All those names are on there, all that. he, uh, We've got all that in there. So, yeah, um, I, I think you'll find that uh, there's a tremendous amount in there covered in a very readable and understandable way. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly there. And if someone's interested in going and uh, purchasing a copy of it, where can they find it? Well, uh, a number of places, like I mentioned earlier, it is available both in print form and in both the Apple and Kindle digital forms. Uh, both of them have the uh, 61R illustrations, the 45 color uh, aircraft profiles, the 10 maps. 
the 23 tables, both both uh, digital and print have that. You can find it on our website, www.detailandscale.com. You have to spell that out, D-E-T-A-I-L-A-N-D-S-C-A-L-E.com. There are links there. Uh, you can go straight to Amazon if you want the printed version or the Kindle, ver- Kindle version. Just type in um, uh, in the search, Attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan Awakens a Sleeping Giant. I would caution that if you do that, make sure you're getting the expanded edition, a new copy. There may be some of the older souvenir-ish, uh, smaller editions on there as well. But the uh, uh, new books, if you will, uh, they they have um, the uh, Attack on Pearl Harbor, J- Japan Awakens a Sleeping Giant expanded edition. And if you type that in, you should get both the printed and the Kindle versions come up. If you want the Apple digital edition, just go to the Apple App Store and type in that uh, search for that. But again, if you come to our website at www.detailandscale.com, it'll provide you links to uh, where you can get those. Uh, Another thing, it will also tell you if you're not familiar with the digital books, but you would like to try them, it even tells you what you need to do, um, what you have to have on your computer or your iPad or your tablet or whatever. Uh, and it's really very simple. I, I really like the digitals because you can expand all the pictures big and, and um, look at them in even more detail. But if you are more old school and you want to print a book, well, we've got that too. So, Well, fantastic. And I'll make sure those notes are all added to our special bonus episode uh, that everyone has seen here. So the readers can find it and they don't have to go hunting and uh, having written down everything that you've discussed. But uh, that's just one of, you said, over 100 different publications that you offer um, and that you've written throughout your career, including U.S. Navy and Marine carrier-based aircraft of World War II, uh, the U.S. Navy and Marine jet fighter series, and so many more uh, with even some deep dives on specific aircraft. So I will make sure that all that information is available for the readers to or it's for the listeners uh, to go check out. Thanks to our friends at Detail and Scale for supporting this special episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast with a great giveaway. Now, they're offering a copy of their book, Attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan Awakens a Sleeping Giant, to three, count them, three winners. So for those of you that are interested, please head on over to our Fighter Pilot Podcast Facebook page and throw your name in the hat for this amazing book. After the winners are selected, we'll forward your information to Detail and Scale for Fulfillment, where the winners can choose a traditional printed book or a digital version of either the Apple book or Amazon Kindle formats. Now, just a caveat here, if you do choose to pick the printed book, it must be in a region where the Amazon print-on-demand feature is available. Our contest will run for one week, and our winners will be selected on December 14th, just in time for the holidays, if you're thinking of any sort of last-minute gift ideas out there. Good luck to everybody, and we'll now back to the episode. Well, Bert, my, my thanks to both you and your partner and illustrator, Rock, as you mentioned, for all your help putting this special episode together and for creating such a lasting and memorable historical record of not only this Pearl Harbor attack, but all the other uh, books that I mentioned. I am so thankful that we have uh, people of you and your caliber in this world that are willing to serve this great nation, but to also capture the history and the lessons Uh, of the past for future generations to learn from going forward. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, I did also want to remind everyone that the views expressed here in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guests and do not represent those of the Department of Defense or its components. We'll return for our next episode on bomber flight test in just under one week. But until then, stay safe out there. And as always, get high 
get fast and do some good work. We'll see you. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.